Well, hello there, it's Antrice, and welcome to another episode of the Savvy Painter Podcast. This week, we're talking to Jake Hawley from Picture Salon. Getting accurate photos of your artwork is tough, and as you'll hear on this episode, there are a lot of variables to consider. Before we get started, though, I just want to acknowledge and thank everybody who submitted questions for this episode. I love hearing from you guys. I love including you in the podcast, and I just wanted to say thank you. All right, let's jump into the episode. Jake, thank you so much for coming on to the Savvy Painter podcast. I'm really excited to talk to you about all things printing. Can you tell me a little bit about yourself and some of the things that we might talk about today? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Thank you so much for having me on. My name is Jake Hawley. I own Picture Salon. Uh, We're a fine art G-Clay printing company. We've been printing for just over 15 years, and we're located in Madison, Wisconsin. Uh, Today, we're going to be talking about a, a wide range of things. I think mainly the best way that you can capture your original artwork. Uh, We'll delve into the lighting, the uh, little tips and tricks to get really crisp, good quality images. We'll go into color correcting and uh, ways to sell your prints, how many prints to order, things like that. So we'll also talk about the different papers and canvases, uh, often called substrates that we offer and um, the way they can change the way uh, your your artwork looks. The same file printed on various different papers or canvases will look slightly different. We'll discuss why that happens and, and things to keep in mind when ordering prints. Awesome. So let's jump into the first question. This is a topic that is currently on my mind a lot as I'm hoping to add a print shop on my website. And so I am diving into the prints production. My question is twofold. One, are there any tips for preparing your image once you have it to send to a printer? So often it looks different on my screen than how it turns out. Also, any tips on photographing art? I've heard so many different ways of doing it, and I've tried them all, and I haven't come up with that perfect way to photograph my artwork. That's it. Thank you so much, and look forward to the show. The biggest thing to keep in mind when sending in a digital file, especially one that you captured yourself, is no matter what camera you use, whether it's an iPhone or a a more professional DSLR, uh, they tend to dull the image down and you tend to lose your true whites and it looks very muddy overall. And a good trick to um, combat this is to use the white balance feature on your camera. And if it doesn't have one, to include a true white source next to your image, whether it be a color card or a calibration card or even a piece of white paper. If your image doesn't have any true white in it, it's it's really important to have some sort of balance or like a reference point. And then when either you are tweaking it in Photoshop or the, the print shop, they have a reference point of what the true white should be. And oftentimes that's 90% of, of the work right there is getting back to a true white that brings back all the colors, gets rid of a lot of the muddiness. And it really, really is almost everything, depending on the image, of course, 
that you need to do to get it to look a lot closer to what your true intent of the original was. Uh, the other thing is, oftentimes, if you're looking at your image on a mobile phone or a laptop, the backlit screen really saturates colors, makes it really contrasty. And we, we get used to looking at the image that way, but it really doesn't look like that, even if you looked at your original. So, you know, if you're comparing what you see on your screen to a print or your original, you're, you're not going to get that depth of color. It's just not possible in print. And oftentimes we forget that what we're looking at every day in our hands is not really how the image looks in real life. That's a really good point. So even like if you compare the image on your computer to what you see on the painting that's sitting right next to your computer, you're going to see those differences as well. And what we're going for is is the best reproduction of the actual painting itself. Correct. Yes. We have got a lot of questions on photographing your art, and we're going to dig into those as we go through this. But I kind of want to go over to this question from Kenneth about a more do-it-yourself version of the printing process. So Kenneth is asking, is it more economical to purchase a large format printer such as the Epson SureColor P8000 44-inch large format ink jet printer or have a print shop make your prints. My understanding is that the cost of maintaining a large format printer can sometimes be prohibitive. Let's tackle the question about the printing, about getting your own printer first. Yeah. So I think this question really boils down to what type of volume you're going to be producing. If you're going to be making a few prints a week or a month, it's probably not the best idea to get a large format uh, inkjet printer. Then the main reason is they need constant use. If they're sitting idle for longer periods of time, the print heads will dry out and the ink lines will dry out and you'll get bad nozzle checks and the ink's not going to be spraying the way it's supposed to be. You're just not going to have good quality um, results. If you're going through a lot of prints a week, in a month, then it probably is the right choice for you. They really do need to be constantly used in order to perform as they're supposed to. So now I know what's wrong with my uh, very cheap Epson printer at home that we barely even use when I just print out text, for example, I get streaks through it. And I'm really realizing that's probably because it's been sitting there for like a month between uses. That's the same with, you know, I have, I think it was free with a desktop computer that I got years ago, a little printer, and we barely use it at home. And anytime I need to use it, the ink's either dried out or it's streaky, like you mentioned. And again, a lot of people don't realize that that printer, although it's maybe a dumbed down version of what we're using, it, it's still the same basic technology. It's an inkjet printer where it has a liquid ink that goes through lines to a printhead and is sprayed out onto the substrate. So although, you know, you can't compare the quality, the, the technology is similar. And if they sit around and aren't being used, the, the printheads do clog up and cause a lot of issues. On these large format printers, a new printhead is, it ranges from seven to $800 to $1,500. So Besides the cost of the actual printer, 
then you know you have to take into account maintenance if you're not going to be using it properly. Wow, I had no idea they cost that much. That's that makes a lot of sense. Kenneth, thank you so much for that question. I'm gonna we're gonna jump back to the question about what is more marketable than if prints on paper are more marketable than G clay prints, because we have a lot of questions about that as well. So we'll jump back to that. Edwin is asking, what are the minimum requirements for a photograph of a painting for reproduction? This is kind of a tricky one. It, it really depends on what the subject matter of the painting is, how large you're trying to reproduce it. You know, if you're going you're very small, four inches by four inches, for instance, you know, you probably don't need a 300 DPI file or, or anything really big. Ideally speaking, uh, you want to have the largest file possible so you have the most options when reproducing it and you get the most accuracy in terms of details. But normally we, we, sh- we shoot for artists to send us in a file at 300 DPI, which is dots per inch. Good lighting is really important. No matter how high quality your image file is in resolution, if you have shadows or bad lighting or bright spots, you're starting at a disadvantage and it's really hard to get back to a good starting point because the image was taken improperly. So can you speak a little bit about, I know that's something that a lot of uh, my students that I work with have have a struggle to understand. When you talk about a large file size that's good enough for printing, the things that affect that are the DPI. So traditionally, 300 DPI is giving you enough information that you can actually like have a good result with it versus 72 DPI which is what we are able to see on a typical computer screen, what that is actually means is the pixels themselves are a little bit larger, I believe. So you have two separate things that were, were are very confusing, I think, to a lot of artists is the dots per inch. And then also, when you look at it, the size of it, because sometimes an image will say that it's three inches by three inches, or it's 18 inches by 18 inches. And, you know, for artists that aren't really technically, uh, who don't know all this technology stuff about image size, can you kind of give a brief overview of that so they can kind of wrap their heads around it? Typically speaking, 72 DPI is kind of the standard format. And that's a vast majority of what we get is in 72 DPI. And if your image is 72 DPI, like you mentioned, you know, the individual pixels or squares are much larger and you're going to have rougher edges and it's not going to be as detailed. If it is a lower DPI, ideally you would want to have the starting image much larger. So you threw out a couple sizes. A 72 DPI, sometimes we get it 50 inches by 48 inches or, you know, something like that. That actually holds up rather well because what we do on our end is anytime we get a 72 DPI or, or anything other than 300, we convert it to 300 DPI. And the software goes in and it increases the amount of pixels per square inch. So it basically shrinks all of those little squares down and it matches. So it, it's essentially making new pixels out of your image and it's, it's matching what's around them to get to 300. And if you start bigger, 
like I mentioned, you know, like 50 by 40 or, you know, something like that. When you're shrinking it down, it has a lot more information to work with. And if I got a four by four at 72 DPI and bumped it up to 300 and tried to increase the size, it's, it's going to look very grainy. You're not going to have any smooth edges. So it's always better to, if you're going to have a lower resolution file, to have a larger size file because it's easier to bump up to the 300 DPI with the software and everything just looks sharper once it's done. So again, for people who, who just really don't know anything about this, and this is the, this is the part I think that makes a lot of people's head explode a little bit. Is there a way that you can just kind of look at it? I'm look at an image and know that this is just not going to work. Some of the ways that I'm, I'm thinking of is the size of the image that's required for memory. So let's say if you have something that's like, that says that it's 300 (laughs) K, for example, pretty sure that's not going to turn out. That's going to be just horrible. That is not going to cut it. I'm wondering, is there like a ballpark for, let's say, if you had an eight by 10 image, I would expect that to be, I don't know, five to 10 megabytes, maybe or how, how like, that's the kind of thing I'm just kind of curious, like, if you know nothing about this, is there like a quick thing you can look at? It really does depend on the subject matter. Um, for instance, like a, a watercolor with very soft lines can get away with having a, a lower file size versus a pencil drawing with very fine detail work. But generally speaking, yeah, an 8x10 uh, should be in the range of 2 to 10 megabytes, ideally in the middle. But again, the, the higher, the better then you'll have more options in terms of if in the future you wanted to blow it up to a 16 by 20 or, or, or things like that. But eight by 10, yeah, right around, you know, five to 10 would be a, a good quality file. And then when you're, when you're getting larger, you know, images 36 by 36, typically we'll, we'll see them 70 to a hundred megabytes or even higher. Those can be tricky sending through email. You never ideally want to send too large of a file through email because it compresses it down and you're losing a lot of your detail. So we use uh, file services like Dropbox or uh, File Chucker to transfer large files. On that note, I'm curious in terms of, of resolution and file size, is there a difference between, um, let's say, flat color images versus uh, something that's highly textured and has a lot of nuance? Yes, something highly textured uh, would most likely have a larger file size, uh, something that maybe is more abstract and is some, some ink blots that would have most likely a lower resolution. But again, it really depends on how the image was prepared, how it was either photographed or if it was digitally done. If you're doing digital art, uh, you always want to start 300, 600 DPI if your computer can handle it. Uh, you know, the higher dots per inch you get, the, the larger the file is. And sometimes computers kind of slow down or uh, glitch a little bit when you're working with them. But if you have a computer that can deal with that, uh, always, you know, start at the highest point you can start at because then it will give you the most options later on. Yeah, that topic of how to how to present the work is just it's a tough one. Yeah, yeah. Unfortunately, there's there's so many different 
you know, ways that people send files in different formats. And there's no one right answer to tell people what to do. It just, it's very dependent on the, the image and the art itself. You know, a really abstract painting with soft lines, you, you don't necessarily need a, a high DPI. And it really depends on the artist's individual preference. We have a couple people that, and they know it's going to look fuzzy and they don't care or, or, you know, we never know what someone's doing with the piece once we send it out. Sometimes people embellish over the top with, with paint. We have a gentleman that prints these really, really large canvases and they're always really fuzzy, but he paints over all of them. It doesn't affect him. So knowing your customer really helps kind of understand, okay, is this passable because he's going to be embellishing it or should we reach out and tell them, hey, you know, maybe think about scaling down the size or recapturing the image. And that's where, you know, I think we'll probably get in into this later, but um, I sent some files over to, to Jake to take a look at. And it was amazing how different the proofs came. That was just mind blowing. So we can we can dive into that later. And for those of you listening, I'll, I'll post images of what we're talking about. For, for you guys, I imagine it's really hard because you don't know what is inside the artist's head and you also don't know. You, it's a lot of times it sounds like you don't actually have the physical painting to do a side by side comparison. And that's kind of one of the things that I threw at you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and again, I mean, a lot of times, if I remember right, your pieces were 36 by 36 and 20 by 30, which cost a ton of money to send in the mail. Plus it's scary to send something like that in the mail. You never know if it's going to get damaged and how do you ensure something that's an original work of art that it's very difficult. And even if you insured it for $5,000, most likely the carrier is not going to be paying that. The original works of art, if you look in their fine prints, it's a very loosely worded contract that you're essentially signing with a mail carrier and they can they can say, no, it's not worth that. And uh, then you're out of luck, unfortunately. So I totally understand why people don't want to send in especially larger works. But yes, like you mentioned, it is very, very difficult to color correct or to know what an image is supposed to look like without having the actual image in your hand. You said we'll mention it later and we will, but real quickly, yours came out with a lot of magenta tones when those aren't even really in it. But if I look at the file on my screen, there's a lot of magenta in it. And you had a professional photographer, I think, take them and they were really high quality files. Like we can really blow them up huge, but the lighting wasn't right. Or, you know, something was just a little bit off when he was taking those images and it adds color, if that makes sense. So, you know, we're, we're seeing those magenta tones come out and now we have to do some proofing through the mail, sending me sending you various copies and saying, how does this one look? How does this one look? Because I don't know what your true intent is. Because even, you know, the pictures that you sent afterwards from your cell phone of the image, now they look very blue to me. So is, was that your original intent or is it somewhere in the middle? It's a very difficult uh, thing to to figure out. Yeah, we can. I mean, since we're talking about it, we can we can actually uh, dive into that because it's a perfect segue into our our next question. But 
Yeah, just to to walk people through the process. As some of you know, I was back in Los Angeles recently. And so I thought I would ship some paintings out to Jake to, to go through the process before we did this, this conversation. And what happened was kind of a shock to me is apparently, with the shipping companies, they have an upper limit on the size and my paintings were just barely over that upper limit. So the charge... (laughs) Like I, I, I was, I was so shocked because I had sent paintings that were just a little bit smaller and it was, you know, I think 50, 80 bucks or something like that. And I go to the shipping company and they're like, no, this is 250 each way. And I was like, what? <laughs> I'll fly out there and carry them myself. So that was the first, the first hurdle to, to get over was sort of doing a cost analysis of, okay, what do I want to do with this? And, and also, like Jake said, sort of that, like, oh my gosh, what's going to happen to my paintings if I ship them across the country? And so I took it to a professional photographer and, and got some really great shots and sent those images over to Jake to do some proofs of. So now Jake gets a really high resolution, good shot and does a print off of it and uh, sent them back to me in, in LA. And the, the interesting thing was, is that I'm racing around doing all sorts of stuff in, in LA and don't really have like a lot of time to, to focus, focus on this. And it had actually been a long time since I had seen, I'd actually seen the paintings themselves. So my memory of the painting was one thing. The image that Jake was getting was another. And then the actual painting itself was a third thing. It was a pretty, eye-opening experience. I got the prints back and I looked at them and I thought they looked pretty good, but they did feel a little bit, the blues in them were leaning more towards the warm, not purple, but you know, within a blue spectrum, kind of more towards that warm tone. And I still didn't have the painting to look at in front of me because it was, it was still at the photographer's. And when I was able to look at it and put the print next to the actual painting, then it was like night and day. And I was like, wow, even between my memory, the print and the actual painting, there was a huge difference. And so Jake and I talked about it. And I, I snapped some photos and some of the the challenges that we're, we're still facing, because we're going back and forth on this. Now I'm in Argentina. So we'll just add an extra layer of complexity to it. Is that so I can take a picture of the print on top of the painting so that Jake can kind of see that side by side, but he's still seeing a photo from my iPhone and whatever my iPhone does, you know, so it's like we're going really meta on this at this point. Yeah, it's going to be a a process going back and forth. And um, ideally, now that you've seen the image uh, more recently, you'll, you'll have it more you know, in your mind. And I think this last round, I sent you either three or four different versions of varying degrees of cooling down the blues and and trying to get rid of some of that magenta. Ideally, we hit it right on the ball and you say, hey, number two is the one. But oftentimes it will be, oh, well, how about halfway between number two and number three? And then on our end, since, you know, I've saved all these different versions, we can just go in and literally hit the halfway point and then we'll send you one final proof and you okay it and then we're good to go. That's something to keep in mind. You know, oftentimes life comes in, uh, 
gets in the way of our plans. And we get a lot of calls saying, hey, I need something tomorrow or I need something next week. And if it needs to be proofed, that unfortunately might not be possible. Um, if we already have the file, yeah, it's easier to print it off as you've got it, you know, hundreds of times in the past and, and send it off to you overnight. But if it's a new file and, and color correction is is very important to you, if you're not local, like I said, we're in Madison, Wisconsin, and we have a good group of artists here in town that, you know, come in and bring in their originals and they get to come in and see the proofs next to the original. And when we have the original with us, we can get it this color spot on. But when it's uh, from afar, like in our case, it is a process of going back and forth. And sometimes you get it right off the start. And other times it, it really, you know, it does take a, a few few trials to get the colors more accurate. It depends on the image as well. Typically, the blues and cyans are trickier than something that was just like maybe a forest, you know, browns and greens and yellows. The cyans really tend to be one of the trickiest colors to deal with. And your images were glaciers with lots of blue and cyan. So uh, it's fun. <laughs> so I, I picked the hardest, the hardest like color, color palette and the least optimal conditions for doing this. So I'm really putting picture salon at a test and they're, they're doing a great job. What I'll say about that, what I, what I really appreciate is, um, kind of the, the level of, of detail and explanation that, and the back and forth that we're able to have. And also when I got the proofs, what I really appreciated was there was a, a proof of the actual, of the whole image itself. And then Jake also went ahead and printed like a detail of some of the different places where there was more color range. So I could get like kind of an at size print to see what that actually looks like. And that was super helpful. It's really helpful to see an overall image because certain areas might be your favorite or most important. And I might have not included it in the, in the detail section, but so it's good to see an overall. Okay. Hey, the sky looks great, but the left side is a little off. And then it's also very important to see detail at print size. So besides color to see if you are happy with the quality, are the lines crisp or are they fuzzy at that size? And, and things like that. But then in most cases, people have the original with them and then they're, they're able to hold it directly onto it and say, oh, you know, this blue is just slightly off or something of the sort. But yeah, it's very important to be able to see how that print will eventually come out at full size. We've got actually a lot of questions that, that are related to this. David is asking, I've only ordered G clays once and received an underexposed print. Unfortunately, I was in a hurry and did not choose to order a test print for an additional fee. My main question is how to properly prepare the exposure for G clays to get it right the first time. I do understand that, you know, you want to keep your price as low as possible. Um, but if color is, is a really important part of your work uh, and different artists have different degree of tolerance levels to that proofs are always a really really important thing uh, especially when first trying a, a new printing company because our software and our printers are different than you know a company down the road and you can send the same image to both myself and a, a different company and get very different results 
And the, the reason for that is different ink sets, different color profiles, the list goes on. So if you're, you know, first trying out a new company or, you know, you've never made prints, it's very important to get a proof to understand what it will look like and to see what changes need to be made. Typically, most of the time when something comes out underexposed or, you know, the colors aren't where they're supposed to be or it looks a little muddy, it really comes down to how the image was captured. And uh, proper image capture techniques are, it's an art in itself. Um, It's very difficult to get a good quality capture. Uh, You need to A, have a good starting camera that's capable of getting the resolution that you need. And and oftentimes now, you know, the new iPhones, for instance, we have a lot of questions about those. They, They do have great quality cameras, but the issue is, even with an iPhone, it tends to sometimes dull the image down and you get this kind of gray overtone layer to it. And that's when uh, I think we already mentioned the white balance really comes in handy or having a reference of a true white next to your image. So then ideally you have Photoshop or some type of image editing program you can go in through various ways. You can say, okay, this is what white is supposed to look like. And then it will dramatically change the way your image looks on the screen. And 99% of the time, much, much better than how it looked before. It's funny because sometimes you you get an image and it looks pretty good. And then if you do a white balance to it, it, wow, oh, this is how it's supposed to look. Now now it really looks good. I didn't realize how muddy or, or distorted the colors were. Any little things like that, really show up in, in, in the final print product. So if, if you don't have a good image capture to begin with, your prints really are going to suffer. David's, David's question and, and our conversation about, about our process leads into uh, this question from uh, Mary Mon. So her question is actually, is it possible to get paper sam- or canvas samples before placing an order so there's that question, but then also what are some of the um, effects that the choice of what you print it on has on all of the things that we've, we've been talking about. I'm just really going to nail you. Like, really gonna, <laughs> get it, get into all the gritty details. We offer free paper samples of all of our substrates, uh, including our canvases. There's a couple ways you can do it. You can either email us at info at picture or on our website, when you click on the individual papers, there's a little button that says request samples. And that direct link is picturesalon.com slash request dash samples if you wanted to go right to it. But a, a simple email saying, hey, I'd like some paper samples. Here's my address works just fine. And uh, we send those out usually the same day, if not the very next day. And it really does help, you know, being able to feel and touch the paper and all the paper samples that we send have the same three images printed on it. So you can see how a black and white looks on various different papers or how a color gamut looks and how a very colorful abstract look. The individual papers or canvas, for that matter, really do change the color. Blacks look different on certain papers. For instance, we have two watercolor papers that we really like. Um, one is Somerset Velvet and the other is Elegance Velvet. And um, Somerset Velvet is very muted. 
things look a little faded, a little dull, but again, some people that's their style. So that paper works perfectly for them. But if you wanted something to be very punchy and colorful, that's not the paper for you. Elegance would be a much better option. And I think, uh, uh, the samples that I sent to you, you you liked the elegance. It has a really nice depth to it. The blacks look really black. The colors look very vibrant. And they're both watercolor papers. They're both textured. They, you know, at first glance appear to be the same, but the inks really display very differently on them. That was really eye-opening for me to kind of like, so Jake sent me this, this with my prints. Um, and this is, this is kind of standard what you do, right? You're not giving me any special treatment. Totally standard. Yep. So yeah, when I got my prints, it was like very nicely presented. I have to say that too. Like there was a protector between each of the prints so that they were all came as intact beautifully as they could. And then there's an envelope that has uh, samples of everything, the canvas, every single one of the papers. And like Jake said, it has all of those um images printed on it. And the elegance one really stood out. Like at first, I kind of opened them up and I was like, Oh, oh, that's interesting. And then I kind of I laid them out all next to each other. And there's a gradient, uh, you have a gradient of uh, colors kind of like, you know, like an RGB sample, I guess, where the colors blend into each other. So you can really see what's happening. And that's when I saw that that's when I realized like, wow, the elegance really has a lot more punch to it. And there's even though what I was looking at was a was a range of colors that bleed into each other. So it wasn't like it was like a red with a sharp line, it was gradated. And even within that, I could really see like the crispness of the difference in the crispness of the colors. And and that stood out to me as wow. I think before I saw that, I really didn't think there was that much of a difference between the papers, except for what texture do you like? Yeah. Yeah. And and that's what most people think. It makes sense. I mean, paper is paper, right? But there's a big difference in how they look. And some work really well for black and white. Other ones don't. Some work really well for color. Others don't. And we try to um, have as detailed descriptions on our website as possible. And if if we think someone might be making a questionable choice, we always reach out to them and say, hey, you know, uh, should we send you samples or do you maybe want to consider trying this paper type? And and oftentimes we also have artists that try out new images on a few different paper types. They'll order on the Elegance, they'll, they'll order on Hanamule Photo Rag and, you know, various other ones. And so they can see in person how their specific image works. Hi, I'm Therese. Hi, Jake. This is Marta in Houston. I have one question. Um, are pictures taken with my iPhone, are they um, adequate to uh, use uh, for prints? That's my question. Thank you. Again, it, it really comes down to having proper lighting. If you don't have proper lighting, no matter what quality camera you use, you're not going to be happy with the results. The iPhones, they, they do a good job. They they get very good detail, but we tend to see them sometimes oversaturating and um, not getting true to color. And the main reason for that is, you know, the developers of the iPhone, they're not thinking you're going to be taking pictures of your art. They're thinking, hey, let's take some pictures of sunset or forests or the ocean or my dog. And you want that really bright, vibrant color. 
and uh, it looks great for those types of pictures. But when photographing artwork, it can distort colors a little bit. And again, if we don't have the original, we have no idea if it has distorted the colors or not, which which is kind of uh, the issue we've been talking about off and on throughout, throughout this interview so far. So the simple answer is yes, it can be used. We have a good amount of customers that probably do use iPhones. I would suggest, if possible, to use something a little bit better if you have access to it. But at the end of the day, the most important thing is having accurate and good lighting, having natural lighting. The sun, for instance, is a Calvin, which is a degree of color between 5,000 and 6,000, depending on the day and kind of where you live in the world and the atmospheric conditions. So you'll notice if you go to a hardware store or a a lighting store, uh, when you're buying lights, it will say what temperature they are. And most most lights are like 2,000, which is towards the redder spectrum. And if you're using household lights when you're taking your images, your, your image captures, you're going to be casting that red, orange, yellow hue onto your artwork. And you may not even realize it because you're used to seeing that color every day. You think, oh, the sun's yellow. That's fine. You really need to try to find light bulbs in the Kelvin range of 5,000 to 6,000. And uh, what's also important is uh, CRI, which the color rendering index of uh, 90 or above. And oftentimes light bulbs are 50, 60, 70. And even if they're in the right color range, if you have a low CRI, you're not going to be getting your true natural quality light. The other option is taking it outside. As long as it's not in direct sunlight, the outside is is best. You can really get good quality captures outside. You can really get good, true colors. And uh, you just want to avoid any bright spots or any shadows. And that's a little bit difficult outside, but like a slightly overcast day is usually a preferred to very, very sunny. Again, that goes back to taking a picture inside as well. You don't want any bright spots. You don't want your light bulb pointing directly at, you know, your art because you're going to get glare or you're going to get shadows depending on where you're standing or other objects in your room. So it, it really it's important to have indirect lighting at proper temperature and um, having the camera the right distance from your artwork as well. Some people, you know, they have a large three foot by three foot canvas that they're trying to take an image capture of and they do it in one picture and it looks great on your phone but when we're trying to blow it up or even print it at size you're you're losing a lot of detail and it does depend on what your subject matter is if it's abstract you might be able to get away with that but if it's something that is, has any sort of detail you want to be taking multiple pictures and for instance uh even like a 20 by 30 we take four to six pictures of when we are doing our image capture and then we use Photoshop to stitch them together. And the reason we do that is because each individual image section that we do is, has a lot more detail than just taking one picture of it. And that way we're able to blow it up and accurately portray any nuances that the the artist has put into their work. Wow. Okay. So this, that's a, that's a great answer and so much to unpack. Um, So I think like, Eileen O'Connor was asking about the lighting. So I think that is a great answer for Eileen. 
And then just to hit a few points that you made that I think are really important, if an artist is trying to do this on their own, if your choices are, I'm going to try to shoot this inside, or I'm going to try to shoot it outside, assuming that it is the average artist who hasn't gone to figure out like what the CRI is and whether or not the light bulbs are 5,000 Kelvin, is it best practice to shoot them indoors or, or outdoors? I would recommend shooting them outdoors depending on the weather. Again, like I mentioned, you don't, you don't want to be shooting in direct sunlight. You're going to get glare. You need to either walk around your house or, you know, wherever you live and, and find an area that's suitable for it. You don't want the sun directly above you, directly behind you. You want to find indirect lighting, regardless of where you're shooting. It needs to be indirect lighting. So if somebody were to then um, set it up on their, their back porch, let's say, where they're, they're in the shade, you've got a lot of light. I mean, even if you're outdoors in the shade on a sunny day, you've got a lot, a lot more light than you do inside. Is that a good? That would be a, a suitable spot for sure. You just want to make sure that obviously your, your image is in as even lighting as possible. So like even in the shade, like you mentioned, there's still a lot of light. But some areas are more shaded than others. So if, if uh, for instance, let's say you put it under a tree, you might have, okay, yeah, it's all in the shade, but this section of the image has more shade than the rest of it. So it needs to be as even as possible. And oftentimes, you know, we get image captures where the left side is way darker than the right side and, and things like that. And that it can be tweaked and it can be worked to try to get it the same level across. But you're still starting at a disadvantage, if that makes sense. You want to have your original file that you're sending in as good a quality in terms of pixels, but also color as possible before we start any type of editing process or proofing process, because you always want to start from the best starting point possible. Mm -hmm. And then from those circumstances, also like the type of shade, it sounds like is really important. I'm imagining under a tree, like you said, you're going to have different variations of the shade because of the the tree coverage. Um, so there might be, you know, obviously, no, um, I think people aren't going to be putting a painting under dappled sunlight. But even if it is, a, it feels like a uniformly shaded area that you're in, if you're under a tree, there still will be some variations in. Absolutely. Yeah. And then the other thing that that I'm thinking about is, you know, if you're doing it under, if you're trying to do it under a tree, like to me, doing it under a tree just sounds extremely difficult <laughs> because then you would also uh, have reflections of green from both the tree and probably I'm just guessing you might be on the lawn at that point. And then you've got green reflection all over the place. So perhaps a back porch or a garage with a door open might be a better solution because at least you don't have reflected colors. Absolutely. And I mean, that goes back to, I mean, I recently painted uh, a room in my house and it looked totally different in the evening light versus the morning light. And then if you mentioned, you know, the sun's hitting the lawn and it's casting colors up on the wall and it, it can look totally different. And yeah, you really need as neutral of a background as possible when doing that. So that is a struggle when you go outside, but you do have better lighting. So, you know, you, you got to kind of weigh your, your uh, pros and cons. So when I try to photograph a painting that has a glossy finish, it's very difficult 
especially in the dark passages. How would you recommend taking photographs of those areas of the painting? Is there a filter you can use, etc.? Yeah, the glosser sheen can really throw some issues, especially um, if you have lighting too close to the image or if it's not diffused enough or you have, you know, something pointing directly at it, you will get bright spots. Never use your flash for any image capture, especially something that's glossy. And a scanner, for instance, will almost always be a bad choice for something that's very glossy or has a high sheen to it because it's so close to that light source that it will throw a lot of glare on it. The best advice I can give for photographing something that has a glossy varnish or sheen to it is to just have indirect lighting. And uh, any, any light that's pointing directly at that is going to cause a glare. You want to avoid that at all costs. Sometimes even setting up a bed sheet may, may help or, or something like that to try to diffuse the light that you have pointing at your image. So putting a, a bed sheet in front of the light, between the light and the, the painting. Yeah, yeah. That's what we find a lot of artists do if they don't have proper you know, photography equipment to diffuse the light. We've talked a lot about photographing artwork and the challenges, let's say, of doing that on your own when you're not a professional photographer. Like I, I will just say that I have, I have tried so many ways to photograph my artwork and I spend so much time setting it up and getting equipped and all that stuff that I've, I've kind of just gotten to the point where it's, such a relief and so worth it to just give it, find a photographer and say, here, you deal with this. It's like, at this point, it feels like I'm, I'm handing over a screaming toddler and just like, here, take care of that. <laughs> we have a, a good amount of people that try to do the image captures themselves, send in the files and, you know, we have to get back to them and say, unfortunately, this, this isn't of good enough quality. It, it won't turn out well. We could push everything out the door that we get in, but we're not going to keep customers that way. We really, really stride ourselves on our good customer service and reaching out and helping everyone we can. We want to do the right thing and make sure that you're happy with your print. We have seven employees. We're a relatively small business and over half of them have are either artists or have art degrees. So we really care about our customers and care about, we take a lot of pride in what goes out the door. We, we don't like sending blurry things or dark things or muddy looking pictures out. And we him and haw about a lot of different images that come off the printers. And because again, on the screen with the backlight, even if our, your monitors are calibrated, which I think is another question we're going to be getting into, it will look different than how it comes out on the printer. And sometimes you don't notice a water spot, for instance, because it's a very subtle difference and the printer, you can pick it up right away. So now we have to decide, okay, do we go in and take that out? Do we contact the customer? Is it something that they might've wanted in? Because again, it's sometimes hard to tell what a water spot it is or what a, a different just ink or paints color can be. It's very hard to tell the true intent of the artist, but we look at every single image that comes off the printers before we pack it up and ship it out and take a lot of pride in what we put out and want to make sure that it's the best quality possible. 
because if we if we send out a bad looking print, yeah, we got money for that one order, but we're probably never going to see you again. And that's, you know, not in our best interest. So we want to keep people around. And the vast majority of our customers have been with us for years and years and years and, and keep coming back. With regard to the photographing the artwork is, is yes, it can be done. But as we've discussed, there are, there's a lot of variables. And if you are not the type of person that uh, has a lot of patience for dealing with those variables, it's probably best for your sanity to have somebody else do it for you. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. It, as I mentioned earlier, it is almost an art in itself. And like anything in life, you, you get better at it the more you do it. The, the first image captures you do yourself are probably going to be not the best quality. But as long as you are capable of realizing that and realizing that, you know, if you make certain tweaks, you can get them better. We, we do have customers that send in a good quality image capture that they do themselves. Sometimes it takes them a few tries to do it. But, you know, like I said, we, we work with you and, and try to give you as many helpful hints as possible to, to get that image looking better. So it, it translates well to print. But yes, it's so much easier to have a professional do it, uh, though it can be costly. So I, I understand both aspects of it. The other issue is a lot of professional photographers don't typically shoot artwork. So Ideally, you want to call a few of them and see if they've ever done it before, because most people, especially if you're a photographer, you think, oh, of course. I mean, it's still subject. I can take a shot of that and I have good lighting and I have a good camera. But it really um, it really is tricky, especially with a glossier image. You might get high gloss or bright spots or uh, shadows or the colors might be off. So it does take a while to get used to it and to kind of get a good technique. It's possible though. So, I mean, keep trying and um, just be aware that your first couple tries might not be of good enough quality. Yeah. And the, you know, the other thing, so there's, there's a couple of issues that, that this brings up that I just, I just want to touch on because I think it's important for people to hear Another factor that we haven't even talked about, we don't need to go into, we don't need to go into deep detail on this, but the lens itself has a massive impact on, on the results that you get. I've kind of just learned that by, I have a good friend who's a, a photographer, videographer and lent me a camera with a different lens and the results were kind of astounding to me. I was like, whoa, that's incredible. So that's another, yet another variable that goes into it. But with regards to the more practical, piece of this for for everybody listening. Um, it's a huge topic. And clearly cost is is a factor. And it's really important. We have we tend our artists tend to have many, many paintings at home. And we are balancing out like what first of all, what do I photograph? What needs to be photographed professionally? What do I need to do if I want to submit to a competition, for example? Is that is that different, etc, etc. So I think learning the basics of just what you're looking at color wise, is super important in terms of uh, just kind of understanding the difference between seeing it on your monitor versus seeing it in in real life. I think that's a that's a big takeaway. And then also sort of kind of taking a look at, you know, okay, what 
what are the images that are that are the ones that I really want to have a professional photograph of? What are the ones that I can sort of, I can do this on my own, and I'm okay knowing that it's not a quality that is good enough for, let's say, like a a large print size, but it's good enough for greeting cards, for example. Yeah, yeah, that's very important. The greeting cards, you definitely have uh, more wiggle room in terms of uh, of that. It's very tough, like you, like we've been talking about, to get a good image capture that's good quality, both in size of the actual file and color uh, and uh, proper lighting. You, you do certain substrates, you have a little bit more wiggle room. Uh, certain size images, the smaller the image, the the easier. All of those things are. When you go really large, everything needs to be very precise and accurate because you're going to be losing a lot of detail if you don't have a good quality file, or you're going to be seeing a lot more of the shadows or bright spots if you go larger, where sometimes those can be minimized if you are keeping it nice and small. Hi, my name is Monica Linares. Most of my paintings are six by six inches on panels, acrylics. I wanted to know if I want to make prints of them that are bigger than the paintings and the original paintings, what is the image that you might need from me to be able to have a high-quality print? Typically, with a good quality capture, uh, you'd be able to increase the print size by two to three times. But again, it's very dependent on the subject of the artwork how detailed it is. And so that kind of would maybe allow you to go larger um, or keep you uh, at only going, you know, maybe two times as big as your original. Oh, no, I was just going to add in that it uh, actually, because I know who Joyce is, uh, she does watercolor, if that changes your answer. Yeah, with watercolor, typically, um, since it is kind of like a, a softer, uh, more muted lines, then nothing is very uh, stark you can go a little bit larger, I would say maybe three to four times. But again, it, it all comes down to the quality of the capture. And um, speaking to that, you would want to photo capture or scan at 300 uh, DPI. Ideally, if you're really wanting to blow it up, you could do 600. And then file sizes would range from anywhere uh, from maybe two to 14 megabytes for the sizes that she was mentioning, three to five inches. But the larger the file, the better. That will give you more options and you won't be uh, hindered by your file. Gotcha. So for everybody listening, like I think probably like 60% of the questions that we got we've, through you guys turning these questions in and the questions that, that I got via email and um, on social media, this is clearly a huge topic. And um Photographing the work itself, like how do we manage that is is a huge struggle for artists. So hopefully we've kind of like showed the pros and cons of doing it yourself versus having somebody else doing it. And also, for those of you who are are learning how to shoot this at home, have some patience with yourself because even a professional photographer, uh, it is a very niche thing that even people who have studied photography uh, would need to have some practice under their belt to get it right. Yeah. The one thing actually that uh, we haven't talked about when taking your own uh, pictures is you really want to have uh, like a tripod or at a minimum, a steady table or something to set your, your camera on because 
even if you think you're holding it perfectly still, there's going to be a slight blur to the image. You need to have it on a tripod or on a table. And then what we do here is, even though our camera's on a tripod, we have a five second timer once we hit the button. So we hit the button, wait, and then it clicks five seconds later and takes the image. And that we found has really reduced any types of motion blur that we have, because even just the act of hitting the button, even if you do it as soft as possible, you will be moving the camera very slightly and that will translate when taking the image capture. So setting a quick timer, five seconds, and having it on a tripod are two really good uh, tips uh, when taking it yourself. Excellent point. Thanks for, for bringing that up. Let's jump, let's switch topics to material. Matthew Gulley wrote in to say that clients frequently want original art to place in the bathroom, which is a high humidity environment. And he advises them not to using original oils on canvas or linen. But Matthew continues to say, I do so intuitively and with no real research or experience. Assuming I'm correct, is there an optimal choice for art reproductions that can withstand the humidity swings of a bathroom? Many times client want nothing encased in glass, which further limits options. Yeah, high humidity is definitely an issue. It it really... um it changes the paper, it changes the ink. And even from our standpoint, living in the Midwest, the summers are very humid, the winters are very dry. We try to keep our office as humidity controlled as possible, but there are still swings and you can feel it in the paper when you're putting it on and and, uh, cutting the prints and, and so on and so forth. High humidity situations are difficult with any type of paper. I would say a photo paper would be a better choice because most of the time they're resin coated. That's going to help hold up a little bit better to that extreme environment. I personally have one of our canvases in our bathroom and it's held up very well for a a number of years. On our canvases, we do a a top coat uh, spray, which uh, helps prevent against uh, UV exposure and general handling, and it makes it water resistant. Uh, It can hold up to like a a light scrubbing with a a damp sponge. So that has held up very well in uh, in the bathroom. If I measured the corners, maybe it would be a little bit unsquare now because of the humidity changing the stretcher bars. But in terms of the actual quality of the image itself, uh, it looks very nice. Probably your best choice for a high humidity environment would be a metal print. Um, Those are printed on aluminum. And uh, the ink is sublimated to the actual aluminum. So you print off on a transfer paper and then you put that into a heat press with the aluminum and the heat and the pressure essentially vaporize that ink and sublimate it to the metal or whatever you're sublimating to. And that that makes for a really, really durable print. And um, being aluminum, it's going to hold up very well to moisture and humidity. I didn't know that's how it's done. That's really interesting. There's multiple ways you can do it. That's the best in terms of getting quality. You you get much better lines, much better colors through uh, sublimation. You can do direct to print on them, um, but those are typically done with like large flatbed UV printers. And it, it looks nice, but... If you're going for fine art, you you really don't want to go that route. Gotcha. Okay. Hi, Jake. I'm Jennifer Case from Past Christian, Mississippi. I'm an oil painter. 
and I'd like to start selling prints on my Etsy shop. I'm just starting out, so I don't want to have a huge stack of inventory. What is the most cost-efficient way to supply customers with prints? Does your company handle drop shipping? And lastly, how can I make sure that the customer doesn't receive an invoice with my actual cost of the printing before the markup? Thanks. So yes, we do offer drop shipping and we do that every single day. And I think that would probably be the most efficient way to get individual prints to your customers. So we don't package it, send it to you, then you have to unpackage it put in your promotional items, or if you ordered multiple prints, take some of them out for yourself and then send off one or two to various different people. So I would say dropshipping is the most economical way to do that. We don't charge anything extra for it. It's just a, a service that we offer. But in terms of price per print, you will be paying slightly more doing single dropships. One print is full price, and that depends on what type of paper or canvas you choose. But then we offer volume discounts. So from two to five prints, you get 10% off. From six to 10 prints, you get 20%. 11 to 24, you get 30%. 25 to 49, you get 35%. And then anything above 50, you get 40%. We're always open to doing custom discounts as well if you've established a a relationship with us and, and we know that you can be expected to do certain volume orders, you know, we, we have gone higher in the past, but that's uh, our standard discounts for everyone that comes to our website. Jennifer also was curious about what, uh, about the invoice, what happens with the invoice? We do all of our invoices electronically. We never send a paper invoice, even if it's going directly back to the artist. We find that that makes the most sense. So we don't accidentally include something into a dropship order. I know pricing is is a very delicate subject with artists and their customers. And obviously, there needs to be a, a markup, but sometimes customers don't like to see what that markup is. So um, we never include a paper invoice with any of our, our shipments. We always send it electronically via email. Benjamin Knight is asking, how many prints do you recommend for the first couple of orders per painting or drawing if if one would like to make a limited run of additions? Yeah, I mean, this kind of comes down to personal preference. I assume he's talking about like a, a limited edition and what volume uh, he should be producing. Limited editions have, first off, they're a great idea if you have uh, a nice good following already. And then you can charge a premium for your prints by saying, hey, there's only going to be 150 of these ever made. But if you're just getting started, I personally would steer people away from doing limited runs. In my opinion, you would want to get your artwork into as many hands as possible. That way, in the future, you're going to have more collectors looking for your artwork. And once you get more established, you would be able to then maybe get into the limited edition uh, realm and uh, make them a little bit more rare or uh, scarce. Typically, limited editions range from 25 all the way to 500. Um, years ago, there were some well-known artists that went into the 5,000 to 10,000 range. And then once those sold out, then they did a second printing. And that kind of tainted the limited edition aspect. And we have some people that don't like them due to that fact. 
that is it really limited or uh, is it not? And back back in the day, if you will, um, when prints were done on presses with things like that, a true limited edition, once its run was done, you would break the plate. And so it could never be done again. Nowadays, with digital printing and inkjet printing, you're essentially trusting the artist's word that it truly is a limited edition. And so that that kind of adds a little bit of ambiguity in terms of the customer the customer's aspect. You need to be a, a well-known and respected artist for someone to truly believe you. Unfortunately, people get tricked all the time in daily life. And I hate to say it, but they're somewhat cynical. The more transparent you are, the more success you'll have when doing limited editions. That there's a lot, yeah, there's a lot of good information in that and a lot of um, kind of strategy for, for people to figure out. Um, and I, I really like what you said about using the strategy based on on the demand of of your work. That approach to it sounds like a lot more, I guess, logical. A lot more, you know, something you can wrap your head around as opposed to just off the top of your head or just kind of a, a random decision to do this. Mm-hmm. I think oftentimes, like anyone, uh, I guess, with their work or line of work, you get very attached to it and you treat it as your baby, and your baby is worth it's priceless, right? And you you want to charge a lot of money and make it as exclusive as possible, which is is very, very good if you're established. But when you're first starting out, it makes it very difficult and you kind of are doing yourself a discredit because you're not going to be reaching as many people. And again, it, it comes down to personal preference and I guess, you know, the artwork itself, I guess, well, everyone's an artist because they love art and they love creating and they love making. Um, and some people don't care if they ever sell a single print or an original. They just do it because they truly love it. And then there's other people that are trying to make a living selling their art. And if you are one of those people and you're just trying to get started, it I personally would want to have as many people as possible see my art so that they would take into consideration buying it. And you would also want to price it at a somewhat reasonable level. So you don't exclude a lot of your customers. Yeah, I think that that answers a question from both Benjamin Knight and Patricia Halsell. Related to that. So Terry's question is kind of is similar to a couple other questions of once you make the decision to sell prints, what do you see out there? in terms of ways to get it to the, to your collectors? A vast majority of our artists, they sell on various different platforms, Etsy, House, Society6, Zazzle. I mean, there's every, it seems every day there's a new website where you can sell your art. And um, it's really, really great to have a lot of exposure. You can reach out to a lot more potential customers, more people that see your work, the more people that will most likely purchase your work. And um, we also have a lot of customers that, especially in the summertime, do the art fair circuits. That's kind of the bread and butter of uh, the vast majority of our artists. And then they they reach out to these other websites. The main issue with Etsy, for instance, is especially if you're just getting started, there's, I couldn't venture to say how many artists on there, but I would say hundreds of thousands. And it's very hard to 
get your artwork seen by someone. Um, so it's very important to use really descriptive terms or think about what someone's going to be searching for when naming your art or when putting it on one of these websites. You don't want something that's too obscure that someone wouldn't necessarily type in because if they don't type in what you're selling, they're never going to see it unless you're a trending artist or you're very popular. Then through the website algorithms, they're going to show you kind of regardless or you might be on the popular page and, and things like that. But when just getting started, you need to um, kind of take some time and, and think about, okay, if I were a customer looking for let's say your subject was wildlife, for instance, you, you know, you might want to do a specific titles like in your title could be different, but in your descriptions, you know, make it as broad as possible. Wildlife art, cheetah in the Serengeti or something like that. You wouldn't want to name him Frank the tiger, <laughs> if, you know, if that makes sense, because people probably won't be searching for that. There's a, um, we did a great episode with uh, Jenny Waldrop on selling your artwork on Etsy. So that's another, Jake, what you're saying is, is dead on. But for anybody who is interested in Etsy in particular, I think we've got uh, two episodes that are go in insane detail on that. <laughs> that's a really helpful subject for a lot of people. And like you said, two full episodes just on selling prints online you sit down and you say, Oh, I'm going to put some artwork on one of these websites and it sounds great in your head. And then you, well, you wonder why you're not getting sales. And it's, it's a very difficult thing to do properly. And like I said, there's thousands and thousands and thousands of competitors out there and you need to differentiate yourself or make yourself stand out and come up in these searches or else no one's ever going to see you. You could have, obviously it's hard to say what the best artwork is, but you could have what someone is looking for and they might not find it because they're not able to search for what you named it or your keywords or, or things like that. Mm -hmm. Your point is, is well taken. And another, another thing that I, that I would add to that is we could probably have two full episodes just on lighting and photographing your artwork. Oh, I think easily. easily. Yeah. Easily. Yeah. <laughs> it would get a little repetitive for the listeners, I think, but it would be. Yeah, easily, easily one or two full episodes on that. Yeah, yeah, it, because there's so many variables. Felicia Van Bark is asking, um, her curator wants to have a vinyl wall sticker that is 10 feet by 30 feet of her work. If the original artwork is 12 by 36 inches, at what resolution does the work need to be photographed? So in her case, she's blowing it up by 10 times. And that's, that's a huge amount. So the highest available setting on the camera or scanner that she's using to get the image capture would be best. I would recommend it at a minimum 1200 DPI at least. Uh, and you still possibly might have some issues depending on what the subject matter is. And we've talked about this quite a bit. If it's, if it's more abstract or if it's a softer painting, you may be able to do it. No problem. If it's something that's very detailed with hard lines, you might run into some issues even even at 1200 dpi. Valerie Milo um, is asking about uh, substrates. She's wanting to start a painting series where she paints murals at home on five by five or six by six canvas. And then she'd love to have those scanned locally for a high digital image, which 
She would like to sell enlarged mural-sized prints of them at 10 feet by 10 feet or 12 feet by 12 feet on different substrates, including metal or any substrate that could withstand the outdoors. And that's the part that I think a lot of people might be really interested in. Um, she's in Austin where they get a hundred degree weather. So for print that is to be displayed outdoors, like if somebody's doing murals or public works, her question is, do you offer print on demand services that can print that large? And also just kind of to open the question up even further, what are some of your recommendations for outdoor substrates? The largest that we currently offer is 60 inches on the short end and virtually any length on the long end. Our biggest current printer is only 60 inches wide. So that's kind of our current restraints. We will be um, at actually the beginning of next year. So in January, we're going to be moving to a new location, which is much larger. We're kind of at our uh, limit at this location. We can't get new equipment in the door because it's too big. So we'd have to tear a hole in the wall, literally. So we're, we're moving to a new place that has a warehouse back end that has a garage door that we can actually get large equipment into. Uh, still probably wouldn't be able to do something that large. Those are typically some, her sizes, the 10 by 10 and 12 by 12 are typically done on uh, UV flatbed printers, which are typically designed for signage. And they do, they do a nice job, but they're not ideal for fine art. You're going to see some streaks and colors will be a little bit different. Um, streaks, I guess, aren't the proper word. Banding from where the print head comes across. The way UV printers work are there's two UV lights surrounding the print head. So it sprays the ink down and it's instantly drying it with these UV lights. It's kind of like if you get a, uh, a cavity filled, uh, they put that little light in your mouth and that cures the resin. That's basically what they're doing on UV prints. And um, they hold up extremely well. You can scratch at them, you can rub them with steel wool, and most of the time the image would still be fine. But you're going to be losing some detail. And typically you get a little bit of slight banding, which is every time the print head passes and lays down the ink, you can see a slight line from that. And there's different settings and different tricks you can use on those. Um, but again, like I said, th those are typically used for signage. And um, that's not something that we do. We focus on our fine art G clay prints. So I wouldn't be the best person to to say how to do that properly. We, we've gone to some uh, some shows and seen some of these printers in action and they're really, really impressive. They just don't work for what we typically do. So we're not going to be branching off into that anytime soon, but metal would be a really good choice for outdoor uh, works. They hold up well to the weather. And I would imagine the temperature, although I haven't personally seen anything in the 100 degree weather of Austin, I would imagine the metal would get rather hot if it was fully exposed. But again, that ink is physically sublimated to the metal if you do sublimation style. And um, that will hold up to pretty extreme weather. The other way to do metal would be to do direct printing with those UV printers, like I mentioned. And it's uh, it's a very sturdy print. It holds up well, but you might lose some detail or some specific uh, color clarity. 
the biggest thing, as we've mentioned several times, especially when you're doing, you know, a five by five or a six by six image capture, uh, and that's feet, not inches, you want to take a lot of images, a lot of pictures of that canvas, not just one standing far back and getting it all into view. I would imagine, and I'd have to do some math, but for a six by six, you're probably taking 24 to 30 images of that painting. And then that is a huge amount of information and data for the computer to handle. So then you have to choose four or five at a time, stitch those together in sections. And then once you have about eight sections stitched together with four images each, then you want to take those eight sections and stitch them together. It's, we, we've tried to do um, image captures. I think the last time we had a really big one come in, it was six by eight feet. And that took, I want to say, if I'm remembering right, like 72 images. And it took the computer two to three hours to stitch everything together. If you don't do it in stages, the computer will just crash. <laughs> it, it tries its hardest and then it realizes it's uh, overworked and it just shuts down the program. So you really need to do it in, in uh, quadrants, if you will. So do you recommend to have an edge around the painting, the print, like a white border where I can sign it? Or it's better not to have a white border and just have the original signature on the print, the one that is on the painting originally. Thank you so much. And well, my name again is Monica Linares. So if you're going to be printing your image, you want to think about how you want it displayed, how your customer is going to display your image. If you want it to be framed and matted, then you're probably going to want to add a border around that. And typically the smallest border I would recommend would be a quarter inch around the, the whole thing. So it would be increasing your image size by 0.5, half an inch. And that will help the framer, or if you're doing it yourself, line it up in the, the mat window and, and uh, secure it to the mat and allow it to be displayed properly. If you don't include a border, then certain parts of your image are going to be cut off from the mat. You just need to keep in mind how someone is going to be displaying your work. If you're going to be having it mounted on to like a, a dye bond or a foam core and you're planning on just having it displayed on an easel or something, then yeah, maybe a, uh, a border isn't necessary. Um, in terms of the signature, uh, it's kind of half and half. We have a, a good amount of people just use the signature that's on their original that's in the file. And um, nine times out of 10, it, it translates very well and it looks good. The only time would be if they were made possibly printing it a little bit too large. And um, maybe the, the subject of the, the painting looks okay because it has soft lines, but then the hard, sharp lines of the signature look a little fuzzy. That's something that, you know, we would reach out and, and discuss with the uh, artist and see what they plan to do with it. Um, but uh, we do have a, a number of people that like to physically sign and number their pieces. And in that case, we typically suggest, though it's not necessary, that if they are adding a border, then they include an extra quarter to half inch on the bottom for to accommodate for the signature. And um, that tends to look very nice when it's matted and in a frame um, with a slightly larger bottom border with a with a real signature 
it kind of goes comes back to what you're charging for your work and who you see as your end customer. If you're charging a premium for your pieces and your end customer might be a little bit more well off, they're probably going to be perfectly fine with making a custom frame and a custom mat and taking it to a, a frame shop and having everything done specifically for that piece. But if you're just getting started or you have you know, a slightly lower price point on your prints, most likely someone who spends less than $100 on a print is not going to want to spend over $100 or $200 to have it framed. They're going to be wanting to find a standard frame size that is available at Target or Amazon or something like that and be able to just pop the print right in. And that's something to definitely keep in mind when pricing your prints and also when um, printing them. We tend to try to steer people towards standard frame sizes if possible, uh, especially when they're first getting started. So you can, again, open yourself up to as many potential customers as possible. Um, that is a great answer that actually Benjamin Knight had a follow up question about the sizes of prints that I think he just answered. And, um, actually there were a couple questions about pricing recommendations. Could you speak a little bit about that? And then, um, and then I'll let you go. I've had you on for a very long time. <laughs> I think typically the price you want to charge for your prints, uh, ranges from two to five times or three to five times, let's say, what, uh, what it costs to produce. And then you also have to take into account the time you put into the original, the time you put into getting the capture. If you had a professional photographer do it, you have to price that into it. Um, I think some little tricks to making a print more valuable or, or being able to charge a, more of a premium for it would also be to include little things like backing board or matting or even as something as simple as a print sleeve makes it a little bit more palatable to a customer, uh, you know, seeing that charge. But typically three to five times is a good starting point. But if you're well known and sought after and you're doing limited edition runs, you, you know, you can you can price it any way you want. And typically they people like that would price it higher, maybe 10 times or more. Jake, thank you so much for doing this. Yeah, I'm happy to happy to do this. This was this was a good time. I think we got everything. Yeah, I think we I think we did. Um, just, you know, for everybody listening, Jake is like, as as you guys are, are hearing, this is this is an extra long episode. I think typically when I do Q&A episodes like this, uh, I'm guessing we get around 20, 30 questions for this episode on uh, prints and photography and everything else that we, we've been talking about. Uh, we seriously had questions in the hundreds. So um, thank you so much, Jake, for sticking it out, answering all of them and giving such great detailed answers. So for people who want to know more about you, how do they get in touch with you? How do they find you? And also, last thing, I know you have a special offer for Savvy Painter listeners, if you can talk about that a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. So um, we're always either a phone call or an email away, info at picturesalon.com. Or you can give us a call at 888-833-1102. 
And our website is www.picturesalon.com. Uh, we're also uh, offering a uh, special 20% discount for anyone wanting to try our services for the first time. Simply go through the order process and uh, at the end, you'll see a little area where you can type in a coupon code. And uh, the coupon code is SAVVY20, S-A-V-V-Y 20. And um, yeah, you'll get 20% off your first order and give us a try. Um, we'd be more than happy to help uh, answer any questions on the phone or through email. Uh, the more questions you ask, the better, because you're going to be happier with your end result. Always keep in mind good capturing methods, having even lighting, getting as many captures as it takes to get the detail of your image possible. And um, yeah, I think with those simple techniques, uh, doing a white balance on your camera, or if you're not able to figure that out, including a true white texture or piece of paper or, or color chart next to your image will really help if you're doing the editing yourself, it will help you. Or if you're sending us over the capture and it has a white color chart next to it, that will help us a lot. That seems to be the biggest thing. Cameras tend to muddy up the images and uh, having a true white point that you can tell the software, this is the true white color. Uh, really helps the image the most. Fantastic. Thank you again, Jake. Lots of fun talking with you about this. I hope you learned a lot today. I know I sure did. We tried to get to all of the questions submitted, but if we missed something, feel free to leave it in the comments for this episode. Jake's going to check in for a few days after this episode airs. So if you are listening to this when it comes out, you can take advantage of that. And if you're listening to this episode later on, don't worry, we've got you covered. Feel free to reach out to Jake directly through picturesalon.com. Show notes for this episode are at SavvyPainter.com forward slash podcast, or just click on the podcast tab. You might want to take a look at that because I shared photos of my painting with the first proof side by side. So that was the one that was uncorrected straight from the camera. It's pretty remarkable how even with excellent photography, there's still a lot that happens behind the scenes to get accurate colors to print on your chosen paper. Speaking of which, Jake and I thought it would be really fun to do a little giveaway. So Jake, what might they win? They might win a 12 by 12 print of your Glacier image and also a $100 gift certificate for any printing needs at Picture Swap. You can enter to win by going to SavvyPainter.com forward slash picture salon and clicking on the link there. There will also be a link in the show notes for this episode. You can enter to win the $100 gift certificate to Picture Salon and the G-Clay of my glacier painting until Sunday, November 10th, 2019. Our winner will be announced on Monday, November 11th. Once again, to enter, that's SavvyPainter.com forward slash Picture Salon or click on the link in the show notes. This contest ends at midnight on Sunday, November 10th. The winner will be selected at random and announced on Monday, November 11th, 2019. Good luck! So until the next time, this is Antrice Wood with the Savvy Painter Podcast. Thank you so much for listening.